Hi, welcome to the Pancast Radio. This is Ethan Fox. I'm your host. I'm here with an artist from Arizona, Ben Vining. Hi, Ben. How are you today? I'm great, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. Yeah. Do you want to tell us about yourself? Uh, Well, I am an electronic musician. Um, I, I was working in professional theater before the world began to end. Uh, (laughs) I, uh, decided to step away from music production for a little bit, a couple months ago when things just kind of began to break out because I, I did, I felt like I needed to recontextualize my artistry, um, especially as a white person. Um, I didn't really feel like commodifying my music was appropriate at the time. And so I um, have really just kind of been doing some thinking about like what my artistry means to me and what kinds of music I really want to make and what it is that I really want to share with the world. And so I think the realization that I've come to is that really for me, what my music represents is joy and just kind of beauty because I think that, um, especially for people who are in marginalized or oppressed communities, I think that artistry is a space where we can all kind of just take space away from the continuous trauma of the outside world and just kind of meditate, you know, for a little bit. And that's, essentially my goal, um, which is why I've decided to uh, make sure that my music is always available for everyone to stream. Um, My music will always be available on my SoundCloud profile. And uh, if people do wish to further support me, I have a Bandcamp profile set up where you can purchase uh, digital copies of my music, and then I'm also going to have vinyl and CDs available of my upcoming album. And links will all be available on our webs on, on the Pancast website and on the, your Instagram. Is that correct? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and spe- <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm talking to the audience. <laughs> sorry. Go ahead. My bad. Uh, I was just going to say. Speaking of. Um, we discussed doing a little promotion uh, for this podcast. And so I have created a special link that will give podcast listeners uh, a sneak peek at one of the tracks off my upcoming album. Uh, It'll be posted somewhere with this podcast somehow. So uh, I'll make sure to send Ethan the link and then I'm sure that you will propagate it. Absolutely. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Um, to actually, is it possible to, or was one of those songs going to be demoed today? Yeah, I have a little demo uh, ready for whenever you, uh... Yeah, um, let's, if you're ready, let's hear it. Absolutely. All right. I'm going to stand for this part, so I'm going to make sure that my framing is still... Okay. So just a super quick little 10 seconds about this album before I play some of the music for you. Um, Like I said, I really had difficulty justifying the commodification in my music, 
especially at this moment in time. And it really was when I got engaged to my amazing partner, Christian, that I realized that radical joy uh, is a legitimate form of protest to the systems that keep us miserable in our everyday lives. You know, happiness that doesn't come from a job or a line on a resume or an achievement that an establishment has decided to bestow upon you. That kind of happiness comes from inside you and is incapable of being devalued by anything in the world. And so this album is my attempt to express my version of that radical joy um, that I just wanted to share with the world. And so it's very meditative, it's very deconstructive, and it's just kind of me examining like what is joy in music? Like what does it mean to just kind of sit down and meditate and enjoy a piece of music? So this is two tracks from my upcoming album, Introspectalism.
Thank you. Yeah, that was wonderful. Okay, so yeah, let's talk about that song. Um, I thought that was really cool. I mean, it started off very like meditative and spacey, and then it seemed to jump around a bit. Um, what it had this sort of postmodern feel. I was wondering, could you talk to us about that? Sure. Um, well, like I said, my approach to this album is a lot different than the way I have approached my creative projects in the past. Because previously, I've tried to conceptualize an album like like in the early stages of writing as like a specific product, like a concept album or like a you know a certain theme or something like that. And to some extent, that works. Um, but I decided for this album that the thing I wanted most was freedom. I decided that I really wanted to. Uh, just sit down and just make music that I wanted to make and just kind of have fun and just enjoy it for myself. And so that first track that you heard was the first thing that I came up with. Uh, it was, I just really wanted to play around with like some ethereal soundscape like just something like that. And then I just kind of kept going and eventually I created some things that were a bit groovier and some more things that were a bit even more experimental. Oh, that's my dog. I'll go. <laughs> He's contributing. Um, and so I have really just kind of let the music take me where it wants to go, essentially. I started with that, uh, that opening chord that kind of comes in um, that is actually a sample of an earlier piece that I did that ended with like a big synth chord like that. And I just took the recording of it and reversed the final chord and uh built that whole thing out of that essentially nice <laughs> so you were um you were talking a little earlier about feeling like a product and i wanted to ask something that you have mentioned to me is the idea of anti-capitalism in music and art and i was wondering could you talk to us a little bit about that what does what sure. does that mean for the world um, of well? And- that's a complicated question, and it's one that I'm still struggling with myself. Um, I I think that it's a, a, a dual sided question because in my brain, I don't want people to have to only interact with my music as a commodity. I don't want that to be their only option because I think that that. Uh, in some ways it devalues my music for me personally because I my benchmark of success is just getting heard by as many people as possible so I want to make my music as accessible as possible Uh, but at the same time I don't want to uh, devalue my own labor as an artist and I want to create the opportunity to accept support from people who are able and willing to support me so that's what I've been struggling with it's like how do you how do you have both of those things be true at the same time? It's not an easy question. So currently, my my current answer is that I've decided to try and make the album free for as many people as possible. It'll be on SoundCloud completely for free. Um, it'll be on Spotify. I'm assuming most people have Spotify. Um, and then you are able to also buy it if you wish. You can buy it digitally on Bandcamp. I'll have vinyl available. Um that's my current solution. I'm, I'm struggling with this question. Um, I, I don't know truthfully if I believe that it's 
for me possible to build a, a large scale music career and have it be truly moral because I really don't want to be someone selling my music because I create music not to sell joy, but just to express and share joy. So I'm struggling with this question as we speak. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a really, I think for many artists, that is the truth. Um, they're trying to find that in between. And yes. Yeah, it's, it's great to hear that you found that in music and how you're trying to outreach and what you measure your success with. Thank you. Yeah, I, I do like um, things like Patreon, you know, subscription services. Um, but again, I think that it just needs to be a careful balance because I think, again, it's too easy to just start thinking of everything you do as content product. You've got to post more. And say what you will about the economics and the morality of that, just as an artist, for me, that's very tiring. Um, it's draining to have to think, oh, I have to post something today instead of just having the freedom to create what you want when you want, which I think is the ultimate danger of forcing the arts to operate under capitalism because it forces you to, to keep, you know, creating. You can't just create, you know... Yeah, no, and after a while, I mean, I think we're seeing this now, is you run out of ideas because you're being forced to do everything immediately. Yes, Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, like when I chose to step away from music production the past few months, there was a strong ideological reason, like I said, but uh, truthfully, I also was feeling a little bit burnt out. I mean, I had been doing the whole, like, because we had already been in quarantine. I had been for a month or two. Like, my the theater that I work at had already been closed down. And so I had been doing the whole thing of, like, devoting all my time to trying to do Patreon, do music. And it it was going slowly but surely. But, you know, it's draining. I was burnt out. I was, like, ready to step away from it after two months. And I think that that doesn't mean that I can't build a career in the arts. I think that that means that the concept of a career in the arts is unhealthy to artists. Sorry, I'm writing this down. (laughs) Oh yeah, no, no worries. Um, And just what I mean by that is not that people should not be full-time artists. What I mean by that is that the concept of a career and having to well, I don't want to get too anti-capitalist here, but, uh, you know, personally in my life, I'm seeing the benefits of this because I'm privileged enough to be able to live like this now. I'm on, I'm receiving unemployment checks from the government, and I'm able to devote my time to working on this musical project, which I absolutely recognize as a great economic privilege, but at the same time, why shouldn't every artist be able to do this? Why shouldn't every artist be able to live like this? Because it's like, really it's both economically and creatively it's freedom. Yeah. Yeah. And with the freedom, um, when you were looking at that first songs kind of like embodying sort of all those mood shifts, is that how do, I mean, is that expressing the freedom that you found in the in the break that you took, or 
Yes, I think so, because I think that, uh, I think that, like, another aspect of, like, things having to be products under capitalism is branding, and things have to be, like, a certain, like, an album has to be, like, one thing and fit into a certain category. And I think that for a long time I had gotten stuck in, like, I have to make a whole album of this kind of music or a whole album of this kind of music, and... I think when I sat down to do this, I just kind of let go of those preconceptions. And I just, um, I decided that this album did not have to be one specific thing. And so there's lots of tracks that start very ethereal and with just noise and build up and end to be, you know, EDM or some that are just like blips and bleeps and vinyl scratches. And I create grooves out of those. Um, and a lot of it does not fit into an easily definable category. And especially when you put them all together, I think when you listen in order, it makes sense. But it would be hard to pick one genre that fits the entire album, which isn't necessarily good or bad. But I think that, yes, it certainly expresses freedom because it's like kind of free from uh, stylistic and like formal constraints. It just kind of goes where it wants to. I love that. That's, I think, my favorite thing to hear from artists. Yeah. Just following where it takes them. Because yeah. that's where it is. You know, it's, it's, it is free. It's joy. It's whatever the artist has inside of them. It is. And, you know, I'm, especially with this album, I'm really thinking about the experience of listening to it for mm-hmm. the listener. And I also want to inspire that sense of like freedom and joy in the listener. Like I, uh, if you listen to the whole album straight through, it's supposed to just kind of relax you and trance you out. And um, it's very just kind of deconstructive, Um, which, you know, I made it that way because I like to listen to it for me. (laughs) And I'm just, you know, maybe I can share my little bit of anti-anxiety with the world. I love that, yeah. <laughs> we'll definitely need it now. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, so do you have another song for us? Or I didn't okay. playing another song for you. I, I I could. This is about the the time I would ask for for another song, but if not, then we can keep talking. I'm I'm down to do either. Um I I don't have another song queued up at the moment, so <laughs> maybe I can stall for like a few minutes while I like load one up. But... Yeah. Um, and again, if you don't want to, no no pressure. Okay. Um, but so, could you walk us through your your process of creating music? We lost him. <laughs> Welcome back. Hello again. Well, my attempt to 
discreetly queue up another song in the background immediately ended in disaster. So. <laughs> okay, so we'll just we'll that song um, that you played will just be the song that we go with. Um, so yeah, well, <laughs> can you walk us through um, your creative process in creating your music, and then also what it was like to take that break? What what journey beyond just the basic freedom and joy? What journeys were you going through as you create? Sure. Um, okay, well, first, my musical creative process happens almost entirely inside a software called Ableton Live, um, which is a DAW like Logic or uh, GarageBand or Pro Tools. Um, I like Ableton because it's very creative. It can do a lot of different things, and it has a lot of capabilities built into it um, that you can just like warp audio in crazy ways, which... Obviously, I like to do. Um, And a lot of my creative process is really just kind of uh, experimenting inside Ableton and seeing what kinds of sounds I can get it to make and which ones I like. Um, That was a critical shift for me in my music production. When I was first starting out, everything was very goal-oriented. I had an exact timbre I had to get, and I would spend sometimes weeks, months just tweaking trying to, you know, do new plugins or like trying to, you know, and I could never get it exactly what I wanted in my head. I could get it pretty close, but it always just annoyed me and bothered me. And eventually I realized that what I had in my head could just serve as kind of a roadmap. I have an instinct and I say, this is what I want to do to the sound. And then I listen for the program's feedback and I, I listen for what it comes up with and then I take those pieces and and put them together so for example that first song that you heard that was very soundscapey um with the you know the rolling chords like I said I sampled this old synth piece um not that old but it it ended with a big synth chord and I, I took the recording of that and I reversed it so that you had that kind of like buildup of the reverse reverb into the chord itself. And then I, I just warped it in a lot of different ways. I sent it into various different reverbs. I recorded the output of those reverbs and then reversed them then pitch shifted that and just kind of built it into the harmonic fabric that you heard, um, which is a big part of what I mean when I say that the music led me where I, where it wanted to, because in some ways it's really my software leading it, you know, um, not that the software itself makes any decisions, but, uh, like the, for example, the choice of interface that you use makes a huge difference. So when I was performing, I was using this and I was using my little keyboard over here to trigger different things. And, um, I've I've mapped it in such a way on here that the knobs each control something and then the knobs that are next to each other control related things so that I just know in my brain, I just know I want to go to this area of my board and then I know that this row is pitched, this row is reverb, this, you know. So in some ways, it's like almost just creating an environment for myself in which I can play. Because it's not, I haven't just memorized, I touch dial number one and move it that much, and then this dial and that much. It's 
I know where to go and I know what I can play with in any given moment. And that's what makes it easy to do relatively easy to do live performance. Like I just did, because it's, it's essentially improvisation. I'm not, I'm not, you know, executing a specific choreographed set of moves, except when I'm dancing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah, that's interesting. I, I wanted to ask about more about because you have an opera and theater and classical music background. I do, yes. So, how did that go from the classical to to EDM and Ableton and just sort of? It was a long journey. <laughs> um, well, first of all. Uh, um, if you want the entire story, first of all, both of my parents are classical musicians. So I grew up on Beethoven and Mahler symphonies and Shostakovich and Stravinsky. Um, and yes. And, um, I, it wasn't really until I went to college that I really started branching out with my musical tastes. I got a lot more into jazz. I got a lot more into experimental, uh, Western art music, um, and uh, through my job at the Black Theater Troupe, I've been introduced to a lot more R&B and 90s music and hip hop, uh, which has also influenced me, actually. Um, I love a lot of uh, beats and rhythmic patterns that come out of music from the African diaspora. Um, it's just, it's so rhythmically like complex and simple simultaneously, which I find absolutely fascinating. Um, like, you know, when they do um, like slight little like ahead or behind the beat, so it is consistent, but it doesn't sound consistent and you're always guessing that's the best. Um, but I digress. Uh, <laughs> the first thing that really got me into doing um effects and and electronic music and things like this was I in college I got into theater which is really kind of unrelated I just that was a career thing more than anything um I started working in theater you know backstage and doing technical things and eventually one of the theater companies here in Phoenix called Southwest Shakespeare Company uh approached me and they said hey we're doing a production of Romeo and Juliet and it's set in a post-apocalyptic hellscape and we want the main character to be a cello player and just be on stage the entire time underscoring live improvisation. And we want that to be you. And I said, all right. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually not entirely true. At first when I agreed to it, uh, I was led to believe I would be composing for string quartet like writing a score as my finished product. And then eventually they were like, we don't have the budget for a string quartet. Can you just perform it? That's what it was. Because then at that point, I knew that artistically what I needed to produce was something very soundscapey and just kind of walls of sound. And then all of a sudden it was like, you have to produce that by yourself. And at this point, I had never really gone into guitar pedals or electronic production or Ableton or really anything like that. So that was the first thing I went into was guitar pedals. I, I put a little pickup on my cello and I got, um, I, for that show, I had like 22 guitar pedals. I had a board at each foot and I was on stage for like three and a half hours with 
just the script of Romeo and Juliet on a music stand. And I was just like playing the cello, you know, with guitar pedals, fun time. Um, and that got me really interested in like solo performance because that got me thinking really hard about how like one person could create all of these different sounds and manipulate so many different things at once in real time. Um, I don't know if you know Imogen Heap and her Mimu gloves where she does, you know, she can... <laughs> Sorry, there was an airplay. What was what was the question? Oh, um, have you heard of Imogen Heap's Mimu gloves? I have like no. Well, it's a pair of gloves she designed that like sense her hand movements and how her fingers are shaped and whatnot, and then they're MIDI enabled. So she connects these to Ableton and she can play instruments just by, you know, going like this and and whatnot, which I, I found that- incredibly interesting. Is that like a theremin? Sort of, but it's even more versatile than a theremin wow. because it's it's just like data inside a computer. Like the glove itself just like has pitch roll yaw of the wrist and then like a bend sensor in each finger. And then inside your computer, you can map each one of those data points to something individual and like do different gestures and things. So you can really seamlessly shift like drum playing or, you know, maybe a weird like wobbly synth or like a bass could just be you know um and she has videos on youtube where she does a whole one woman band things where she's doing all these different instruments by herself and that got me really interested in trying to figure out like how i could create my own version of that because romeo and juliet got me really interested in doing more shows like this at first my my focus was on a theatrical application um, I did another show for my friend Maybe um, at a smaller theater company here in Phoenix. Um, again, I was on the cello and I did, I had guitar pedals again. Um, and at that point I started uh, working on exploring the world inside my laptop because the guitar pedals were starting to be, you know, you can only sh- turn so many dials with your toe at once while you're playing the cello. It's not the easiest thing to do, especially if you have shoes on. Um, so I wanted a better control method. And so I spent just kind of a lot of time just kind of nerding out about it and reading about it and exploring what was possible. And um, I ended up creating a few different tools and uh, you know, just a few different like things that I play with and, experiment with and record with to this day. Very cool. Yeah. So theater actually almost kind of got you into this. In a weird way, yeah. yeah. That's true. That's, um, yeah. It always baffles me what kind of connections I can make outside of my own. Uh, that is so true, yeah. yeah. The theater was the bridge for me between the worlds of classical music and electronic music. Like, if I had just stayed a classical composition major, I probably never would have really gotten into EDM and trance and house. Like, I used to look down on that kind of music. You know, it's it's only after getting into a lot more non-Western art music that I've come to appreciate 
the elitism that can be present in academic institutions, particularly those that study Western art music. Because uh, if you're in it, and if you've just been raised in that environment like I was, and especially if you're white, it's all too easy to just be completely unaware of that like I was. Yeah, um, and I was very much the same way where I was was only classical and yeah, and I'm still finding my way. Um, speaking of elitism um, and academia, so music all has a, a very specific community, um, and you mentioned um, you want your listeners to feel joy and and freedom. Yes. What sort of community are you looking to target with this music? And how do you want to affect that community? Well, I think, first of all, my audience is anyone who's willing to listen. Um, I, I have designed this album to be as palatable as possible to people with diverse musical tastes. I was talking a little bit earlier about how diverse stylistically some of the different tracks are. Um, but to be more specific, I do think that my primary audience is people who like electronic music, specifically more ambient things that you're meant to just kind of listen to and, and kind of relax to, um, which to be specific, is a community mostly of young people. Um, I don't think that this is an album that I would play at a festival like Coachella. <laughs> um, I think that it's certainly more geared towards home listening and just kind of like... It's more intimate than that. I think it's meant for like reflection more than anything. So that's why I say that I do think that it is also palatable to uh, to older folks and to people who aren't as into electronic music because it's, it's, it's a journey more than anything else, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, and now, so I think this goes off of this question, but so why is diversity important in music? And then also, I think related is how can we sort of start to break down the elitism that's kind of invaded the academia? Um, well, first, I want to acknowledge the fact that I am a white person. So my I can obviously speak on this as a queer person and as somebody that just is interested in hearing all voices. But... Uh, obviously, my opinion uh, does not speak to the experiences of uh, Black, Indigenous, or Latino, or other non-white uh, folks, or uh, women particularly, or uh, people who are members of the trans community. Um, so I will say that for me, I believe that the root of elitism is is um, just believing that there are specific reasons that make one piece of art better than another. And what I mean by that is I think that a lot of people in in academia particularly have a tendency to just kind of 
want to find reasons why the works that they study are better than the ones they don't. You know, like I, I've just, I've noticed that this is a trend. I've noticed that, um, you know, I've, I've, I've noticed a lot of classical composers look down on electronic music and just say, well, that's very processed, isn't it? Or look down on pop music and say, well, that's very auto-tuny, isn't it? Um, and my question is, well, I have two questions. One, why is the timbre of auto-tune bad? Isn't it just another instrument that we should enjoy listening to? And two, um, even if a singer is out of tune, why is in tune better? You know, it's just because we've been educated, really indoctrinated to believe that it's better because we've all been conditioned to believe that West is best. You know, I, I saw this video circulating on Twitter a couple of weeks ago of this, I believe he was Nigerian, but uh, an African young boy uh doing some ballet demonstrating some ballet dances and he was fabulous he looked wonderful and uh some people were showing this video and and saying like imagine if he had the chance to go to juilliard and my response to that is no he's been educated and achieved that level of skill by being educated in his african country where he lives and in his own culture Uh, he doesn't need to go to a western university in order to be as talented as people educated at Western universities. And the belief that a degree from the Western university is the end all be all achievement, I think is an incarnation of white supremacy because these are institutions that are often founded by and named after colonizers and slave owners and, you know, people who have historically been exclusionary uh, with who they have admitted to their institutions Um, which is why people of those communities have created countercultural systems of education and uh, systems of, of, um, of culture, really, that allow them to create their own art and express themselves at the same level, just separately. You know, if universities exclude queer people, then queer people are going to go and make queer art and then there's going to be communities of queer artists supporting one another and learning from one another and teaching one another and you're going to see the same thing in black latino indigenous communities any other peoples who have been excluded historically from admittance at uh, universities and at institutions of higher education or have been excluded from canonization as well you know um, for the longest time bernstein david diamond really wonderful American composers just have never been discussed in, in music theory classes or music history classes, or if they are, they're a footnote, you know, or people know, you know, people say Toni Morrison is one of the great black writers instead of just saying she's one of the great American writers or just one of the great writers. Um, So I think that it's the tendency to categorize and to demean anything that is existing outside of the institutions that we have been conditioned to believe are superior to all else. Yeah, I really connect with that, Um, especially as a fellow artist. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I guess. Yeah, I don't know what questions to go off of that. <laughs> I mean, you, I think um, you've done a really good job in summing up the. Thank you. Yeah, the the historical reason why we've become more and more uh, exclusive towards other forms of art. Um, I guess my next question would then go back to your art okay. and say, why, why now? Why do we need to hear it now? That's a really good question. You know, um, like I said before, uh, when the George Floyd protests were first beginning, I, I decided to stop really uh, trying to sell my music actively because it didn't feel right. Um, and for a while, I really struggled with, I was thinking about like, when is it going to be appropriate then for me to come back, you know? And for a long time, I, for, for a few months, I, I didn't care because I wasn't ready to come back yet. Um, and it was, it was after I got engaged to my partner, Christian, that I really just kind of started to, like, I was struggling with, before that, I was struggling with, like, you know, with everything going on in the world, uh, and all the news that I see 24-7, anytime I'm on my phone, to just sit down and devote my time to making music seemed trivial and frivolous, you know? And I think that it was my engagement that really made me realize and start to believe in the power of joy. Not, not in some, like non-specific way because what I mean by that is that there's power in in joy and happiness and choosing to labor on something that provides you happiness that exists outside of a capitalistic meritocracy or outside of a, a job a career you know, and that's been my goal uh, with this because to me, I think the reason why now is because I'm finally ready to approach it in the right way. I think that before um, I was in some ways putting the cart before the horse because I I had some good music and I just wanted to sell it, but I I wasn't fully comprehending and understanding my place in society as a white artist, as a queer artist, as, as an artist. And I think that now I have a much better grasp on it. And I think that now I have a much clearer conceptualization of how I want my art to function in our culture and how I view my place as an artist in our economy. It's really cool. So what does, what does joy look like to you? I think it can take many forms. Um, I think for many people, joy has become a word that is used so often that it has lost its specificity. Like I think that so often we hear 
politicians, you know, try to unite us or try to make us feel better by just saying that, you know, there's power and enjoy hashtag resist, you know, and, and that's, that is not an invalid form of joy, but it's very different than the specific radical joy that I'm talking about, because I think that they respond to harm in different ways. You know, the joy that just says, you know, just stay happy, just, you know, the nonspecific platitudinous joy responds to harm by just saying, oh, we'll just count your blessings, just, you know, but it's not specific. Radical joy that I'm talking about, like the love that I have for Christian or like the joy that I get from having created this music, radical joy is by definition incapable of being devalued by those attempting to do harm to the joyous. Like any anybody attempting to be transphobic toward Christian or homophobic toward the two of us, you know, is incapable of devaluing the joy that we share. If anything, it will make it stronger because we unite together in opposition to that. Or anybody who just, you know, decides to, you know, go on the internet and say that my album is stupid or, you know, they can say what they want. I don't care. Or, you know, if, if two people listen to my album, if zero people listen to my album, if zero people buy my album before that would have really upset me because my goal was to try and make income and to try and become a famous musician. But now I've already accomplished my goal because my goal is now just to make music that brings me radical joy. And I've done that. And so now I don't care, you know, I I don't care if it flops, if it makes a little bit of money, if nobody listens, I don't care. And no one can ever devalue it for me. And that's what I mean by radical joy, because it's specific and it's, it responds to harm in a very specific way that, that does really do a lot of work toward holding up the person, you know? And I think that's the perfect note to end. Um, ben Vining, thank you so much for thank coming Thank you so back. much for having me. Yeah. Um, um, my album, Introspectralism, is going to be out in a few weeks. Stay tuned. And like I said earlier, there's going to be a special secret link for you all to get a special preview. So stay tuned. All right. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Bye.